We have already been noting in this great letter of Paul's certain things relating to him and to the church. And in particular, we were considering last time the praying of the Apostle Paul. He was a man of prayer right from the start. When he was converted, the Lord testified concerning him in Acts chapter 9 to Ananias, Behold, he prayeth. He's praying. And that's something that continued through Paul's Christian life. He was indeed a man of prayer. We see in this first chapter to the Colossians, where Paul prayed for these people. He prayed for them when he was in bonds, when he was in prison, when he was separated from them. It wasn't out of sight, out of mind, however. He had them very much in his heart and in his thoughts. He was not feeling sorry for himself, incarcerated as he was, chained to Roman soldiers. He was busily engaged there in praying for God's people. We noted as well why he prayed for the church. One of the reasons that we can certainly extrapolate from this portion is that knowing their progress in the things of God, he did not want that to be derailed by false teachers. Didn't want them to be led astray. He knew there was a serious danger that false teachers posed and that there were those who were seeking to infiltrate that church with their false doctrines. Paul prayed about that. Furthermore, we notice what he prayed for them. He prayed for their spiritual welfare. And we'll note in a few moments what these requests were. But it's important for us to mark this. That these are the kinds of matters that we should be focusing our praying upon first and foremost. Spiritual things. And then a record is given of when he prayed for them. Without ceasing. Never stopped praying. He continued to pray. And that's a challenge to us, isn't it? Because we have a tendency to stop praying. We have a tendency to pray for something and then we get discouraged and we stop praying. But Paul didn't get discouraged through a lack of success in prayer. He prayed without ceasing. He lived in the atmosphere of prayer. When he prayed. Then we notice the way he prayed. He prayed with urgency. And he prayed with unity in the sense that he uses the collective pronoun, we. He was most certainly praying personally for God's people, but he was praying along with others. He believed in collective praying and corporate prayer. And it is vital for the church that we learn to pray not only as individuals, but that we come to the place of prayer. And that we seek the Lord together for the needs of the work of God. And let me just say, it's a great encouragement when another believer tells you, I'm praying for you, brother or sister. And it is especially heartening when that one who's saying this is a noted prayer warrior. You know that that person is going to be praying for you. It's not just talk. It's not just something to say. They actually mean it. That they're going to seek the Lord on your behalf. And in that connection I'm thinking about an illustration of a preacher. Who was once asked by someone who was leaving a service. To pray for something on her behalf. And I love his answer. He said yes I will pray about that. As the Lord brings it to my mind. 
Because he didn't want to tell lies. He didn't want to say, oh yes, I'll pray about that. And then within a very short time, a day or two, he'd forgotten all about it. No, he said, I will pray about that with you and for you as the Lord brings it to my mind. And so we actually should pray like that. We should pray that the Lord will help us to keep our promises in prayer. That when we say we're going to pray for someone, that the Lord will bring it to our minds to help us to continue in prayer. The Colossians, obviously, even though they've not met Paul, apparently, must have felt a sense of great encouragement when they received this letter from the Apostle Paul. Because Paul told them in that letter, I am praying for you. Since the day we heard, he said, we're praying always for you. Chapter 1, verse 3. And in verse 9, he repeats this. We do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and so on. Now I want us to look a bit closer here at the particulars of Paul's prayer for these people. I mentioned in that other message what Paul prayed for them. It was for their spiritual welfare, no question. But there were spiritual petitions here, requests that he made from verse 9 down to verse 12, and he prayed, we see there, for at least six vital things. Now, we're not going to get to all of those tonight. You can relax if you think, oh, six points. We're just going to deal with three of these tonight. But there are six vital things that Paul requested or prayed about for the Colossian Christians. So we'll look at the first three of those. And in the first place, we notice that he desired, and that's a good thing for us to consider here. In verse 9, notice the wording, We do not cease to pray for you, and to desire. And isn't that what prayer really is? Prayer is just vocalized desires. Prayers are spoken desires. There's a desire in your heart. There's something that you want from God. And you articulate that. You speak about that. So Paul desired certain things for these people. And he brings it to God in prayer. The first one is that they might be enlightened concerning the will of God. Look at verse 9. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, that's all they'd heard about them from the beginning, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now let me just right off say that we as believers ought to be asking this for ourselves. Continually. But also for other believers. I've said that there are similarities between Ephesians and Colossians. And here's one of them. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17. The apostle writes, Wherefore be ye not unwise but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Don't be in the dark when it comes to the will of the Lord. A true Christian is going to be interested in the will of God. 
And he's going to be interested in the will of God for his or her life. Now this was a mark of Paul from the very beginning when he was converted as Saul of Tarsus. What he said when he was knocked off that beast to the earth and he saw the great, great bright light from heaven and the voice speaking to him. He said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What wilt thou have me to do? Right away, he's interested in the will of God for his life. He wants to know what it is that God desires him to do. Is it not a sad thing when people have no direction in their lives? And that's the general truth when it comes to men and women in the world today. There are people who literally are living without any direction. They're unsure of what it is they're supposed to be doing and where they're going. They certainly don't know God's mind or God's will. And it seems that they're not interested in God's mind or God's will. But that's not true of Christians. Believers are interested in the will of God. And my Bible tells us that you can certainly know God's will in general for your life. When I say in general, I mean what God's will is for every Christian, without exception. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. First Thessalonians, chapter 4, and verse 3. First Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 3. What's the will of God? For this is the will of God. Even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Here's the will of God, that you be set apart for a holy purpose. That's what the word sanctification signifies. So there's something right away that every Christian can certainly aspire to. To be sanctified, to live a holy life. That's the will of God for your life as a Christian. Turn over to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians and look at verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now this is not easy. This is not just a simple thing. It's easy to give thanks when things are going well in your life. When the wind is at your back, but it's not in your face. When you're not facing trials and tribulations and opposition, it's easy to give thanks. It's easy to say amen and praise the Lord and hallelujah when all's going well in your life. But how about when it's not going so well? In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Here's God's will. For every Christian. And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15. 1 Peter 2.15 For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It's talking about how you are to live before men, even without contradicting Scripture or the law of God, submitting yourselves to the ordinances of men, even to those that are set over you. It mentions that in verse 13. 
Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. This is a repetition of what Paul taught in Romans 13. For so is the will of God, he says, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So here's the will of God for every believer. The Bible tells us what God's will is, what God's mind is, what God wants. But in particular, not just in general, believers must seek the will of the Lord all the time in their lives. And what I mean by that is praying for clear guidance in given situations. Because sometimes you come to a fork in the road and it will not do to heed Yogi Berra's advice and take it. Because there's a choice. When there's that fork in the road, you can either go right or you can go left. And as a believer, there's a way that God wants you to go and there's a way that He doesn't want you to go. And we face that kind of decision all the time. It's not just a one-time shot in your life. This is something that happens repeatedly. Look at Acts 22 verse 14. This is the same incident as is recorded in Acts chapter 9 where Saul of Tarsus, later to become Paul the Apostle, gets saved. And Ananias talks about that time and he said that he, 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 he uh, said certain things that the Lord had told him and, and Saul here, Paul, is giving his testimony about that. And he says in verse 13 of Acts 22 that Ananias came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked up upon him. And he said, notice this, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. God had chosen him that he might know his will. Once again, Paul himself wrote to the Romans in Romans 12, in the first two verses, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God has a will for you. And yet let me say that Paul writing to the Colossians has in mind here a full understanding of God's will for your whole life in Christ. He wants them to have a complete knowledge of God's eternal purpose for them. His overall plan for his elect people, such as he outlined to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, from verse 17 to verse 20. Let me read those verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 to verse 20. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Similar terminology to what you find in Colossians 1. 
that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Paul wants the Colossians, just like he wants the Ephesians, to grasp what they really had in Christ. He wants them to have a deeper knowledge and experience of the Lord Jesus. That's why I say he prayed for them that they might be enlightened concerning the will of God. Now in this first prayer, Paul actually uses in the Greek language what we call a superlative in place of a word that the Gnostics were very fond of using. Now I've mentioned the Gnostics. They are people who prided themselves on their knowledge. The word gnosis from which we get Gnostic has to do with knowing, with knowledge. They were big on that. They boasted of gnosis. In English you spell it G-N-O-S-I-S. It's a Greek word for knowledge. But when Paul is writing here, he doesn't use the word gnosis, he uses the word epignosis, which means, literally, super knowledge. This is knowledge to the nth degree, if you like. And it was for lack of this super knowledge that some of the believers in the assembly at Colossae were in danger from these false doctrines and those who preached them. They didn't have the super knowledge. But they needed it. And how that super knowledge is needed among the people of God even to this day. You know why? Because this is a day of superficiality when it comes to the things of God and His Word. Oh, how superficial is the knowledge of some people. You talk to them and they're supposedly... Christians have been on the road for many, many years and they know zilch practically about the Bible. What a sad situation that is. Superficiality. And the greatest need of the hour is for a deep, accurate, comprehensive acquaintance with how God has expressed Himself in His Word. Now, the thought behind this prayer of Paul's for them, let's look at it again. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge. There's the word from which we get this. It's super knowledge. It's epigenosis. Filled with the knowledge, this super knowledge of his will. In all wisdom and spiritual understanding, the thought behind that prayer is not only for a knowledge of God's will for our lives day by day, but His overall plan for His people. And how do you get that knowledge? Well, you get that knowledge as you're guided by the Holy Spirit as you search the Scriptures. That's how you increase in the knowledge of God. You get a full, comprehensive understanding of God's will for your whole life in Christ from the Word of God. And the will of God for our lives 
day by day is a fulfillment of his great eternal plan for us in redemption. And this is the knowledge that the believers at Colossae were in danger of not grasping fully. The knowledge, the full knowledge of that will would have kept them from listening to the enticing words of the false teachers who promised them so much of wisdom and knowledge. That's the thing about the Gnostics. They were big on that. Wisdom and knowledge. But it was that which would puff people up with pride. It's not really the knowledge of Christ as it is found in the Scriptures. Paul wants God's people to be enlightened concerning the will of God. And you will notice how he puts it. That they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. That word filled and other similar words, fullness, complete, are words that you'll find all the way through the book of Colossians. And they're words that refer to Christ in some instances. For example, it tells us in verse 19 of chapter 1 that in him all fullness dwells. Pleroma, fullness. When he says that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. It's the same idea. Completeness. There's another place where he actually says, And ye are complete in him. That's chapter 2, verse 10. Ye are complete in him. It's the same word. You'll see it in verse 9. The word is used in the, in the verse just before that. Chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, Christ, dwelleth all the fullness, the pleroma of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. Ye are full of him. You are filled full in him. That's the idea. What Paul is referring to here is a deeper knowledge and experience of Christ. It's not something new. It's not a new experience. Some preachers really emphasize this kind of thing. It's almost like they're telling people that there's certain experiences that they need to have in order to grow as a Christian. But that's not the case. What Paul's referring to is a greater knowledge of what you already have in Christ. See, we don't need anything more than the Savior. We just need a deeper appreciation of what we have in Him. We'll come to that in a moment. So Paul desires they might be enlightened concerning the will of God. He desires, secondly, that they be endowed with the wisdom of God. And that's the phrase he uses there in that text. Chapter 1, verse 9. To desire that you might be filled. It means filled full. With the knowledge of his will. In all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And let me just point out. Words like wisdom, knowledge and understanding were big among the Greeks, especially among the Gnostics. They were part of, the, of their vocabulary. They emphasized wisdom and knowledge, knowing things and understanding things. But real wisdom and the knowledge of Christ and not the false theories of the Gnostics was what Paul desired for these Christians. 
Look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, Of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, where does wisdom come from? Well, wisdom is found in Him. He is made unto us wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 He says, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you, lead you astray, with enticing words. Real wisdom. It is what James referred to when he said in his epistle, James chapter 3 and verse number 15, This wisdom descendeth not from above, that's this ungodly wisdom, it descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. But then verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. This is what Paul desired for God's people. Real knowledge, the knowledge of Christ. Think of that biblical injunction, 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in grace. It doesn't say grow into grace. You're already in grace. It's grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Now the Gnostics agreed that the knowledge of Christ was a good start. It was a good beginning. But progress in wisdom could only be made by adhering to their many philosophies, observing holy days, and practicing rituals, and even astrology. The study of the zodiac, and of the signs of the zodiac. And all of this was an attack on the sufficiency of the Savior. And what Paul is seeking to establish here is that Christ is all and in all. Christ is all that you need. If you have the Savior, you have everything that you require. You don't need new experiences. You don't need further experiences. You need Christ and just a deeper and a greater knowledge of Him. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. That they might be endowed with the wisdom of God. It's really that their knowledge might be completed in Christ. Let me again notice this word with you, filled. It's used there in the scripture. Verse 9, that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will. It actually means to be completed or to be controlled. It's interesting that this word from which it comes in the Greek language was used of a ship that was fully rigged and stored and ready for launch, ready for sailing. In other words, that ship had everything that it needed for the journey. It was complete. Nothing needed to be added. It was all there. And that's what he means. That your knowledge of Christ might be completed. Or that you might be controlled by that knowledge. And that word for fullness is connected with control in the New Testament. You go to Ephesians 5.18. It says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the word again. It has to do with control. 
you know, there's a great contrast we can draw there. When someone is under the influence, as we talk about alcohol, they're controlled by it. Which means that they're not in control of whatever it is that they have. It could be a device. It could be a, a motor vehicle. There's just been a high-profile actress who, driving her car very, very fast, drove into a, a house, set it on fire, set her car on fire, set herself on fire, and she's now in hospital recovering. I believe her name is Anne Hesh. It's under investigation, but apparently she had earlier run her car into someone's garage and damaged that property. And someone had the presence of mind to take a photo of her in her car, which is all over the media now. She looks like the wreck of the Hesperus herself. Very bad. Someone said that there is what looks like a vodka bottle in her car. Some reports have said there were beer cans in the car. I don't know, but certainly there's some suggestion that she was driving under the influence. That would explain why you would drive your car at full speed into a house. Why does that happen? Well, it happens because a person is not in control of their faculties. Something else is controlling them. Be not drunk with wine, we're in excess, controlled by the alcohol, but be filled, be under the control of the Spirit. That's what Paul means. Being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so this is the knowledge of Christ that Paul is referring to, that he's praying about for the Colossians, and it's all the knowledge that they needed. A deep, growing knowledge of Christ and of His Word. And that is what we must strive to get. The word knowledge is interesting because it has to do with a growing understanding. And in the context, a growing understanding of the vital truths of our faith. This is why we use the word enlightenment. You, know, you can actually learn definitions and things in your head so that you can repeat them. But it's whenever you have the full knowledge in your heart of what it means that it takes on a totally different level of understanding for you. Or your understanding rises to a different level. Because it's not just a matter of it being in your head. You've now got an understanding of it in your heart. And notice Paul joins wisdom to spiritual understanding. And what he means by that is having wisdom to know what to do in given situations. You see, wisdom is totally different from knowledge. It, it's distinct from knowledge. What is wisdom? It's more than an accumulation of knowledge. You know and I know there are a lot of educated idiots in the world. And what I mean by that is people are very intelligent, they're very smart, they've passed examinations, some of them are PhDs, but they have zero common sense. They don't have any wisdom, don't have any discernment. So they have the knowledge that you gain from books, from learning, their heads are full of that, but they don't have wisdom. Because wisdom is not just accumulated knowledge. It's being able to take that knowledge and put it into practice. 
I can teach you something, hopefully, but if you can't then learn from that how to do what it is I want you to do, what good is that knowledge? It's more, wisdom is, it's more than a mere grasp of certain facts intellectually. You can be knowledgeable, but not wise. So what is wisdom then? What is it that Paul wants the Lord to do for these Colossians? When he says that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What he means is that he wants them to know how to make a proper use of the facts. What they know about Christ must govern their practice. It must make a difference in the way that they live. That's what he wants to see. Practical Christianity. God's will actually applied to their lives where the rubber meets the road. And this is what we need. Wisdom for life. Wisdom for living. How to react in certain situations. What to do in certain situations. Wisdom that comes from God. We've read these words before in James chapter 1 and verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. If any of you lack wisdom, what do you do? You pray about it. That's what Paul's doing here. He's praying for these Colossian believers that they'll not be lacking in wisdom, but that they'll be filled with wisdom. Wisdom that comes from the Lord and that comes from meditating on His Word. That's how you become wise spiritually. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul wrote concerning this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 and verse 13. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Spiritual wisdom. This is something that we need, and it's something for which Paul prayed for the Colossians. As well as praying that these people might be enlightened concerning the will of God and endowed with the wisdom of God, he prayed in this way that they might be enabled in their walk with God. As I said, it has a practical outcome, a practical outworking. When you see the word that in verse 10 of chapter 1, it it really means in order that. I'm praying for this, that you'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, in order that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful, and so on. In other words, he wants them to be enabled to walk with God in a proper way in this world. This is where we live, in the world. And the Lord wants us to walk in a certain way. Now that phrase or that kind of terminology, walking, has to do with the way we live. And, for example, in Ephesians, you'll see different usages of this word. 
Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. That you, that you live in a way that lives up to the calling that you have. That's what he means. And then verse 17, he puts it this way. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth, that means from now on, walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. You need to walk in a different way. You need to live differently from the world. Not the way they live. But living for God. Not walking as the Gentiles, as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. There's to be a difference in your walk. Now look at chapter 5 of Ephesians verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savour. Walk in love. Again in verse 8 of chapter 5. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Don't be living the way you lived when you were in the darkness spiritually, but walk in the light. And then verse 15 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. The word circumspectly has the idea of picking your steps carefully. I've used this illustration in the past. I think it's a good one. Where my grandfather lived, there were row houses that had little tiny yards. No grass, just concrete. And there was a back wall and a door. There was an entryway that ran along the back of those houses. And sometimes bad boys and maybe girls, would climb up over those walls and break into people's houses or they would do things in their property. So in order to stop people climbing up over the top of that wall into his yard, my grandfather did what a lot of other people did along there. He put concrete, just a nice line of concrete there, and in the concrete he stuck broken glass, shards, of broken bottles and glass. If you did that today and some burglar come up into your yard to break in, they would probably sue you for getting hurt. But anyway, that's what they did to stop people from breaking in. And it, it was quite a deterrent. But one of the funniest things I remember seeing when I, would at, at, when I was at my grandfather's house, I'd look out the back window sometimes and I'd see some of the neighborhood cats walking along the top of the wall and just see those cats picking their steps ever so carefully in through that glass. They never cut themselves, they never got hurt because they were walking circumspectly. They were walking wisely. They were picking their steps very carefully. That's what this word means. That you walk circumspectly, picking your steps carefully, watching where you're going. That's how the Lord wants us to be. And Paul's prayer for the Colossians was that they might live lives that are worthy of the Lord. You say you're a Christian, live like that. Walking righteously. Now, of course, none of us are perfect. We're not going to be able to do this perfectly. But certainly we should conscientiously seek to live in a way that reflects our testimony. 
so that people are not saying, him, her, Christian, are you kidding me? Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your conversation, that's an old English word that really means your manner of life, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Again, 1 Thessalonians, the chapter 2, and the verse 12 says, That ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom, and glory. Same thought in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. And in that instance, it says, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Living like Christ. Walking like Christ in the world. That continues in 2 John. 2 John and verse 6. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it, walking in his commandments. And finally, third John, verses 3 and 4. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth, walking in the truth, walking worthy of the Lord. All of these together are speaking of the same thing. Walking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Remember Enoch? The thing about Enoch that's so amazing to me is that Enoch lived in an ungodly, wicked society. But nobody walked with God. But he did. And Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24 tells us this. That Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Remember one time my pastor saying this and it might have been not his. It might have been borrowed from another preacher. But he said Enoch walked with God. And he walked so closely to God that one day as they were walking God said to Enoch Enoch we're closer to my home than we are to yours just come home with me he walked with God and he was not for God took him you know it's interesting there's a commentary on that in New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11 for he's one of the heroes of faith and Hebrews 11.5 says by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. I love that. He was not found. They sent out a search party to look for Enoch and they never found him. Where's he gone to? He'd gone to heaven. The Lord translated him. The Lord removed him from this earth to glory in an instant. Because before he, he was translated, he had this testimony that he pleased God. He walked with God. That's what the Lord wants us to do. 
He wants us to walk with Him. Are we walking with God? Are we living in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? Or seeking to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? The statement was made by the Lord to His people in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 3 verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And sometimes we apply that to interpersonal relationships between Christians and saying, well, we can't walk with that person because we're not in agreement. But that's actually referring to God and a person. That they're not in agreement. So they can't walk together. And in the book of Micah, the minor prophet, we have this statement uh, that is made in chapter 6 and verse 8. Beautiful text. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. It is so important to live like a Christian in this world. That's what Paul desired for the Colossians. You see, wisdom and knowledge are for living. It's not just to puff our heads up with learning. What we learn is to teach us how to live. The preacher D.L. Moody once said, Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. What did he mean by that? Well, it's obvious what he meant was people need to be putting the Bible into practice. Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Living like a Christian. Is that our aim? To please the Lord? Because that's the word that Paul uses here in closing. He talks about a number of things using the word all. Did you notice that? In Colossians 1 verse 9. With the knowledge of his will in all wisdom. In verse 10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Verse 11, strengthened with all might unto all patience. Think about that one. In verse 10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Pleasing the world? No. Pleasing other men? No. Now, should I want to live to please others? Of course. To a degree. We don't want to be obnoxious. We want to live in a way that is winsome to others. But at the same time, understanding that if we walk in a way that is pleasing unto the Lord, in many instances, it's not going to be pleasing to the world. They're not going to like it. They don't like it when we don't run with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of us. That's how Peter put it. Now, interestingly, this word pleasing, unto all pleasing, in verse 10, it literally means to complete delight. Unto complete delight. Again, 1 Thessalonians, the chapter 4, And the verse number 1. The word of God 
says, Furthermore then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Living in a way that pleases God. Is this our objective? Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. You know it says of the people of the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5, with many of them God was not well pleased. With many of them God was not well pleased. Is the Lord pleased with the way that we seek to live from day to day? There's a clear progression here in Paul's prayer. And it's really this. The more we know God, the more we know His will. The more we will love the Lord. And the more we love the Lord, the more we will seek to obey Him in thought, word and deed. I love the Lord. And therefore I want to live in a way that's pleasing unto Him. It's not, I want to live in a certain way so that I'll get to heaven. No. You'll never get to heaven by living a certain way. We get to heaven because of the merit of Christ. But as one who is in Christ, it ought to be your desire and your objective to live in a way that honors Him. That brings glory to Him. Quoting again, Matthew 5.16 Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. May God help us. Amen.